This episode of the Consulting Pipeline Podcast is brought to you by me, Philip Morgan. I have a new book out. It's called Specializing Without Failure, and it may be very useful to you. One of the things that I go into a extraordinary amount of detail on is this question of proof and credibility. How much credibility do you actually need in order to launch into a new specialization? This book can help you answer that question for your, your business. Your answer is going to be different <laughs> than anyone else's. And I think it will be a useful resource as you're trying to figure out where the best opportunities lie for you in terms of specialization. Find out more at specializingwithoutfailure.com. Continuing on with my casual impromptu, unprofessional review of David C. Baker's book, The Business of Expertise, today. Let me start by being very clear. If the topics on this podcast are of interest to you, if they are relevant to you, to your business, then I really think you, I can unambiguously recommend that you buy David's book. So just buy the book. That's how you know if it's interesting or relevant or helpful to you is it so closely corresponds with the whole idea of what I'm trying to help you accomplish with this podcast, that if the podcast is something you look forward to hearing, I think I can unambiguously tell you that the book will be more than worth your time and the money you spend acquiring it. Before I launch into the review, a couple of caveats, I will distort and misrepresent the content of this book. It will be unintentional, of course, (laughs) because I'm going to be paraphrasing. It's been a couple of weeks since I uh, closely read the book or read it for the second time, actually. So I know those things are going to happen, and I just want you to know that they are unintentional. I will um, try to give you a sense of what's in the book, why I think it's valuable, but it's for sure that I'm going to make a few mistakes along the way or misremember things slightly or just slightly distort the meaning of what David is saying there. So I'm going to take a sip of coffee here and uh, we'll get into it. Why should you care about this book? Well, I can't help but see this question through my own perspective as a former generalist and now very, very, very much more happy uh, specialist, someone who has specialized in a way that has allowed me to, in a relatively short period of time, develop expertise that is, I don't know if I'm overstating it by saying world-class, but unique, not very common, even if you... uh, took a worldwide search to find similar expertise, I I don't think you would find something quite like what I've been able to develop in two or three years. And I am super happy (laughs) about uh, what, what that's done for me and my business. And so I promote this idea heavily that you, uh, and if you're in my audience, you're a self-employed software developer, you should consider specializing you should give it a chance because I think it's a big part of the answer to a lot of common problems that self-employed service providers 
aka freelancers face in their career. So expertise is both a journey and a destination. I mean, it's a journey in that you're never there or you're never, I think for, for people for whom the path of expertise, which is what I've kind of started taking to calling this journey for people for whom the path of expertise is a good choice. It's probably a never ending journey, but it is made up of, you know, sort of along the way, little destinations or resting points or places where you are temporarily satisfied with how far you've come down that journey and what that journey has enabled you to do for others in your business, for your clients, or if, if like me, you sell information products, you might think of your customers. I, I do both, provide services and sell products. So anyway, whatever word works for the people you're trying to impact with your, your expertise, the people you're trying to help, you can help them better the further down that journey you are. And I call it a destination as well because it is something that sort of resembles an achievement. But again, it's if it's a destination, it's a sort of circular thing. <laughs> and if it's a journey, it's a very long, linear thing that may last the rest of your life. Either way, if that whole subject of how it is that you develop economically valuable expertise is interesting to you, then that's one reason you might care about this book, The Business of Expertise. A couple other reasons I think are very relevant. In uh, marketing, we think about a differentiator. What makes you different than alternatives to hiring you? And that goes, I think, deeper than just marketing to all the way down to the question of what is special, what is unique, what is valuable about what you offer. Really, it goes down, it kind of boils down to what's valuable about what you offer. In, I, I believe this to be true, that every other differentiator aside from expertise is inferior to the core differentiator of expertise itself. Not sure that was worded in the most elegant possible way, but hopefully you get the point. You will see if you survey the, uh, <clears throat> the marketing, particularly the online web presence of 10, 20, 30 custom software development shops, you will see some patterns right away <laughs> in terms of the type of things that are described or claimed to be differentiators. You will see people saying things like, uh, our process is amazing or unique or superior. You'll see people saying the same things, by the way, about their team. You know, the, if they have employees or subcontractors or, you know, more than one person, you'll see them saying that about their team. And there are other things that are sometimes used as differentiators, but those are perhaps the two most common uh, faux differentiators, not, not really strong differentiators, weak differentiators that are used by generalist software development shops. Every, imagine going to a, a doctor, you have been, God forbid, but in this example, you have been diagnosed with a brain tumor, which is operable, yay, but scary. Um, 
you go to the doctor, the doctor is having the sort of initial consult where they talk to you. They are a specialist, you believe. Anyway, you've been referred to them. You, they, you know, they have the credentials of a brain surgeon. And imagine if they spent most of their time talking about how wonderful their front office staff is or how efficient their filing system is for, for maintaining medical records or how clean their bathrooms are or that's probably enough to make the point, isn't it? Those are differentiators that I suppose a very good brain surgeon could use to convince you that they need to, you know, you need to have your insurance company, hopefully pay them to do this operation on your body. But geez, would that be the worst sales pitch ever? If, if you were in their office and they were describing their wonderful filing system and their in, incredibly competent front office staff, it would be more than beside the point. It would be completely irrelevant. And that's what I think when I see um, almost any kind of services company trying to highlight that stuff, their you know so-called awesome process, which really looks a lot like the process everybody else uses, and their so-called awesome people, which might be good, but they're probably more hired more for convenience than because of their world-class expertise. So anyway, <laughs> all other differentiators, I believe, are somewhat or, or vastly inferior to the core differentiator of strong, unique, valuable, world-class expertise. Now you may say to yourself, Philip, this is not my beautiful house. No, I'm kidding. You may say to yourself, Philip, <laughs> I have expertise in dot, dot, dot. I'm a amazing at making web pages load super fast. I have real deep expertise in Swift. I have expertise in, you just insert whatever technically oriented expertise you want and I'm going to say the same thing about it. Good. I'm glad you have that expertise. That is a wonderful starting point. And it is almost guaranteed to be temporary. Now, I need to give you a quick caveat here, which is that my time frame for temporary is something that does not last 10 or 20 years. And I am, I mean, there, there are plenty of programming languages that have been around for longer than 10 or 20 years, but they no longer carry a price premium because they are fully commoditized, which means there are tons of okay or even good options for acquiring that technical expertise. This brings me perhaps <laughs> to the first thing I want to tell you about David's book. He is very interested in economically valuable expertise. There's all kinds of other expertise, and I don't want to insult or, um, you know, cast dispersions on other types of expertise. So if you're a really awesome um, maker of, you know, small batch uh, whiskey <laughs> that you brew in, your, in the back of your house, and that's your expertise, that's awesome. But 
that is probably, unless you, um, you know, are lucky, that's probably not economically valuable expertise. You got expertise in, you know, romantic literature or medieval art. Again, unless you're one of very few people who are uh, creating value with that expertise in academia or an art institution or something like that, that is not economically valuable expertise. And I'll be honest with you, I spent the greater part of my 20s fighting this very thing that I'm now saying with great certainty. I did not want it to be true. I wanted my interest in black and white uh, film photography to be exceptionally economically valuable so that I could just do what was fun for me and turn that into money so I didn't have to worry with this stupid job thing that I had at the time. My point is, (laughs) economically valuable expertise is what David's book is interested in talking about It also happens to be what I'm interested in helping you cultivate in your business. And a deep knowledge of the technical ins and outs of a software develop, uh, you know, a programming language, a platform like Windows or AWS or what have you, all those things are, they do have value. I'm not saying they are valueless. Don't get me wrong. But their value is temporary on a time scale of 10 to 20 years. If, and I should add to it, a value is temporary on a time scale of 10 to 20 years if that is all the value you have to offer. And most generalists, that's how we start about thinking about things, is my value is my skill with, and I'll just go more broader than software developers here, but you know, my value is my skill with... Um, this particular programming language, or my skill with functional programming, or my skill with Photoshop, or my skill at writing stuff, or my skill at designing wonderfully usable user experiences. Again, that stuff has value, but the evergreen, durable value that actually makes you much more profitable and wealthy is combining those technical skills with something that provides value in the world of business that creates an economically valuable outcome or result. So that's why I think you should care about this book. It's all about that stuff. Now, it's not specific to any one type of business aside from being generally focused on um, creative services firms I think software development shops are have a lot in common with creative services firms, but also have some differences. So I, I think it's still quite relevant to the self-employed software developer or the small, medium, or large uh, shop. One of the things that you'll see is um, a really excellent three chapters at the start of this book that talk about the foundational principles, one of which is positioning. And David introduces this concept that I think is very valuable. This concept is a sort of two-sided coin. He focuses on one side, I focus on the other side of that coin. He talks about how when you have 
expertise that is difficult to find a suitable substitute for. Think back to someone who has just been diagnosed with a brain tumor, which is operable but fatal if not operated upon. They are looking for a very specific type of expertise. If they're if they are talking to their car mechanic and they're like, "Yeah, man, it's a huge bummer. I got diagnosed with this uh, brain tumor. It's all going to be okay. I just need to find somebody who can take it out." And the car mechanic suggests, "Well, you know, I've done some pretty tricky uh, work on uh, cars in my time, and I'm used to working in small spaces and cutting through things and having to pull stuff out that doesn't belong. Um, you want me to take a crack at it?" That's not a substitute for the brain surgeon's expertise. And that's one of the hallmarks of expertise, of true economically valuable expertise often, is that you can't just easily find substitutes for it. So David talks about, in in the book, The Business of Expertise, he talks about how the fact that it's difficult to find, readily uh, find substitutes for certain types of expertise means you have more control in the relationship with your client. And he's right, I think. Think about how much control you have when you hire somebody to mow your lawn. I know this example won't apply to everybody equally, but I think we can all imagine ourselves um, hiring somebody to, to mow the grass in our lawn. And you're looking out the window, and the person that you hired is some kid from down the street, nice kid, but this kid is doing a terrible job of mowing the lawn. You're going to look out and say, wow, they're doing a terrible job of mowing the lawn. This is probably the last time I will hire them to mow the lawn. And in fact, I could just do it myself if I had a few more hours in the day or if I decided not to do this thing so I could spend the time mowing the lawn. I could just do it myself. That's a perfect example of expertise. I mean, there is some expertise there. You know, the kid's got to be able to operate the lawnmower without cutting their own foot off or, you know, damaging things. So there's some expertise there, but there's so many others who could do the job the same or better. So that kid in that situation where the kid's been hired to mow your lawn has basically no control in in the relationship. They uh, show up late, you're fired, or... Do that one more time and you're fired. They decide they want to do it, mow the lawn in circles, and you wanted it mowed in straight lines. Forget it. They, they just don't have a lot of control. And one of David's big points in this book is that specialized expertise gives you control. Now, it's not control for control's sake. Uh, I'm sort of reading into David's thinking here. It's not like... I mean, maybe you are a control freak. Let's be honest, you probably are a little bit. (laughs) I am a little bit too. Um, I think there's a certain personality type that gravitates towards certain types of work. And, uh, you know, people who are not control freaks often don't thrive in detail-oriented work like software development. Anyway, it's not necessarily that you want the control for, for the sake of the control, You want the control so that you can help the client do something they don't necessarily know how to do or they don't have the best instincts about or they're going to make poor decisions about. In other words, you want that control so you can help them make better decisions and get better results. 
because that is what creates that virtuous circle where they're happy they hired you. They didn't just hire you because they could have mowed the lawn and but didn't have time and needed somebody else to do it. They hired you to do because they hired you and you made something better and you made it better than they could have done it on their own. Even if resources or talent availability wasn't a consideration, it's better because you help them make better decisions. And David's point is having the control that enables you to do that makes for a better client relationship. And this is probably one of those cases where I'm slightly distorting or misrepresenting what David said. This, so this is more really my takeaway, I guess, from what he said. And I agree. And I think that's a, a hugely important point that if you read his book, he's, he's going to flesh out more fully. I talk about it in terms of value, and I think it's the other side of that coin. You can, a lot of times, if you are seen as an expert, if you operate as an expert, and if you actually have the expertise that you claim to have, you can help create more economically valuable results for, for a client as a result of that expertise. And the fact that you can do that makes it easier for you to look a client in the eye and give them a price for something that you know is expensive but worth it. Without that expertise, if you only have just the expertise of understanding a, a programming language or knowing how to do agile development or some of these things that are more on the technical end of the spectrum, well, then you, um, you can't create as much value for the client. That control or that additional value that you can create helps you increase profitability. This, this is another point that David brings out in the book. I don't have a page number reference for you, sorry. It's somewhere between page 24 and page 39, <laughs> according to my notes. And he talks about how um, the real goal is growth and profit, not necessarily growth in more, uh, more easily visible things like how big your office is, how many people work for you, that kind of stuff. That, that kind of stuff maybe for some of us feels good. It feels like, oh, we've accomplished something if we add a few more employees or move into a bigger office or what have you. But the more valuable goal that expertise can, can uh, help you accomplish when it's economic, when, in, when that expertise creates economically valuable outcomes, the more valuable goal is that you increase the profitability of your business. I like any book that delivers some tough love, and, or I like it when books are when all book authors are willing to go there with the tough love. David does. Um, page forty-one, he talks about. Actually, page 39 talks about you may have a hobby that you are running like a business. And at the end of the day, the difference between those two is courage and discipline. I can't agree more. <laughs> and the reason I resonate with that is because when I started working for myself, I really did treat it more like a hobby than a business. It made money. I'm not saying I made, you know, $50 my first year. I, I made, you know, 
what felt like real money at that time. But it was, it's not, I'm not saying it's a mindset, but David is really willing, and, and I'm grateful that he is in this book, he's willing to call you out <laughs> on these things. And he, he has another one on page 41 where he talks about uh, this delusion that you think you have a business enterprise, but really you have a sort of job, <laughs> you know, a, a nice job, one that maybe pays well, but one that without your presence there just would, you know, the whole thing would fall apart if you're not there. And, you know, this is sort of the point uh, from the E-Myth and other similar books where if your business is 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 very dependent at all on your daily presence there, and mine is, make no mistake, like I have a job that is not an enterprise, but I don't think I have any illusions about that. Um, anyway, my, my point here is that, uh, I like that how David's willing to lay down the tough love. He's got another section a little further on in the book where he talks about something that I'm very keenly interested in, which is this idea of fulfillment in your work. Uh, I think he's got at least one chapter on this topic of what are your, it's really around this question of what are your expectations about your work? How enjoyable is it going to be when you, you know, have a moment to really calm down and reflect and you think about what you do? Do you find it fulfilling? Emotionally, how do you feel about it? That's a sort of cluster of questions that I think about a lot in working with my clients. And I'm going to sort of depart a little bit here from talking about what David says in the book and just say, it's good, (laughs) check it out, and just briefly touch on a subject before I try to wrap this up today Um, that has to do with you, dear self-employed software developer. I looked on Glassdoor.com the other day and looked at the average uh, salary for a, a software engineer. Now, I think this is more people who are operating as a full-time employee. So if you're self-employed, these numbers won't translate, you know, directly, but they're, I think they're close enough to be useful. A um, software engineer in the United States of America makes a salary that translates to an 87th percentile uh, income. So if my math understanding is at all correct, that means on average, if you're this self-employed software engineer, on average, 13 out of 100 Americans make more than you do. Some of them will make dramatically more. Bill Gates, for example. Um, But think about where that puts you in the sort of uh, hierarchy of earning potential and lifestyle potential. It's pretty good. There are a ton of other people who work harder to earn less than you do. Uh, Some of them have to get certification or training. I'm thinking of somebody like a dental hygienist or a massage therapist. They both make less than you do, and it takes more training to do it. So they have to put up with more shit 
than you do in order to earn less money. And I I may have like a really kind of stern tone in my voice right now. I'm not really sure. <laughs> if I do, I, I sort of apologize. Because I'm not trying to be mean, but I think that as you're thinking about your business, it is probably somewhere in the back of your mind that if things don't work out for you, you can just get a gig. You can get a contract job, a full-time job, especially if you have some of the more currently valuable skills like iOS software development or, you know, I could name others. That one's already heading into mainstream adoption and therefore uh, becoming more and more commoditized in terms of the supply of skills. But yeah, that's a pretty decent example. You're going to feel like the failure mode for your business is maybe painful, maybe not fun, but actually not that bad. It's not like having a golden parachute and being a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and, you know, things don't work out and, oh, well, here's, here's your $30 million, you know, exit bonus. But in terms of like what normal average people experience, it it's pretty close to that from their perspective of, you know, maybe working their ass off to, to make forty fifty thousand $50,000. So I think that's always in the back of your head. Uh, I mean, it's, it's even in the back of my head, to be honest. I'm like, okay, what if I changed my mind or what if things just didn't work out or went bad or went south? Well, I could always get a job. And I think about the fact that I, pr- I honestly could probably not earn as much <laughs> in some kind of, you know, mid-level or senior marketing job as I could doing what I'm doing now, but it still wouldn't be the end of the world. It's still far better than going on unemployment insurance. My point is this is a constraint that has to be respected as you are thinking about specializing. If you specialize in something that is not enjoyable or satisfying or fulfilling for you, you are likely to erode your willingness to really work at it because most self-employed software developers aren't all that heavy on the mercenary aspect of their personality. If they were, they would probably be doing unpleasant work that pays more. So that's the last point I want to make today. I know this episode's getting much longer than my usual episodes. And I'm sorry for that, but I wanted to make the point that David touches on this subject. I think it's a very important subject, and it's something that you have to consider, I believe, is, um, you know, if if you're going to go down that road of taking your, your company and your work more seriously, perhaps, or making some difficult choices that temporarily increase the difficulty of doing what you're doing, then there's a part of you that may be working to undermine that, those choices or that discipline or that courage that you need. And there needs to be, uh, you know, the sort of payoff for that courage and discipline and difficult decision-making needs to be worth it. And for it to be worth it, it has to, I think for most people, 
be a better option than falling back to some kind of full-time job. So I will leave you with that thought. I will come back with one or two more episodes where I go a little uh, a little further through David's book, which again is called The Business of Expertise. I get no money for promoting this book, but I do get the satisfaction of knowing that, and I wouldn't want, by the way, any money for promoting this book, but I, what I get and want is the satisfaction of exposing you to something that I think will be valuable for your business. And that's why I think you should snag a copy of this book at your earliest convenience. So that's it for this episode of the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. If you have a question you'd like me to tackle on air, I know it's been a while since I've gotten to questions, but trust me, I've got a deluge of them coming. Call in to 707-204-0717. Leave your question as a message. Again, that's 707-204-0717. And um, I'll just close with a quote from some dude on Twitter called Shane Parrish who says, sometimes success is 3% brains and 97% not getting distracted by the internet.